Welcome to NTD Evening News. Our top story tonight, former President Trump in court. He takes the stand in the Eugene Carroll defamation case. Arlene Richards breaks down for us why Trump's tried again and what are the arguments so far. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro sentenced for contempt of Congress, but will he go to jail? Senators giving mixed reactions about the ongoing border deal. Is opposition from Trump having sway? Melina Weitzkup on Capitol Hill. Republicans across the country today standing with Texas. This after the state invoked its constitutional right to defend itself against an invasion, indicating it doesn't intend to follow the Biden administration's orders. Arian Pazdar has the latest on the border showdown. This is NTD Evening News, live from our NTD Global Headquarters in New York City. Here is Tiffany Meyer. Good evening and thank you for joining us tonight. Former President Trump testified today in a New York federal court for the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. This is the former magazine columnist who alleged Trump sexually assaulted her in a department store in the 1990s and then defamed her when he denied her claim. This is the second trial on this matter. A jury last year decided that Trump did sexually assault Carol and he was liable for defamation. This second trial will determine how much money Trump must pay in damages. We turn now to entities Arlene Richards for the latest on the trial. Arlene, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now for starters, let's go back for a minute to the first trial. The jury in that trial hit Trump with a $5 million verdict. So why is he in court today for the same defamation claim? Good question. So in the first trial, she claimed that Trump defamed her in 2019 because he denied that her claim that he had raped her in the 1990s. Now she was not allowed to bring that claim into the case because the statute of limitations had already run. So what they did was they said that you can talk about the rape claim because you have to prove that in order to show that he defamed you. In a defamation case, truth is what you have to prove. You have to prove what you said was true. So therefore the jury had to determine whether or not he actually raped her. Now the jury did not think she proved that he raped her, but they did believe that he sexually assaulted her. And so under, in those terms, because of that, they awarded her the $5 million. Hmm. And now if the jury has already decided that Trump defamed her, why is there now a second trial that seems to be the same case all over again? It's second case, she claims he defamed her again in 2022, making the same claims that he, he denied that he raped her and he called her a liar and made some other comments. But this time she's bringing the claim under the Adult Survivors Act. Now this is an act that was passed by Governor Kathy Hochul in May 2022. And what it does is it allows people who were sexually assaulted at any time in their life, whenever that was, they have a one year period within which to file a claim. So under this act, she can bring in the claim that he sexually assaulted her officially. So this is part of her complaint, right? That he sexually assaulted her and that he defamed her in 2022. So the judge has already decided that Trump assaulted her because of the first trial. So he's telling this jury in the second case, you don't have to determine whether or not he sexually assaulted her. You only have to decide how much should he pay for the defamation. 
Well, now let's turn to Trump's testimony today. What does he have to say about all this? So today, uh, Trump was limited in terms of his testimony that he could give because, as I said, the judge has already decided that he sexually assaulted her. So he can't say or couldn't say anything about that in terms of it's false, it's a false accusation, I didn't do it. He couldn't say anything like that. So his attorney, Alina Haba, kept her questioning short, and she only asked him maybe three or four questions. And two of them, she said, did you intend to harm Ms. Carroll with your comments? And he answered, no. He said, I was trying to defend myself. Next question, did you think what she said was false? He said, yes, I did. But then he added that it was a totally false accusation, which he's not supposed to do, and the judge immediately struck that from the record. Wow, quite fascinating. Well, Arlene, thank you for that report. One more thing before we go. Tomorrow, there will be closing arguments. So tomorrow, there's a lot at stake because as, you, as I've said previously, it was a $5 million award. This time, she's, awarding, wants, she's asking for over $10 million. So there's a lot at stake here. I'm going to keep following it, and I'll keep you updated. Well, we look forward to that report tomorrow. All right. Thank you so much. Now, in another case, former President Trump is seeking to drop the Georgia election case. His legal team is pointing to an alleged misconduct between Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis and her top prosecutor, Nathan Wade. Willis is accused of paying Wade more than $650,000 an hour while having a romantic relationship with him. Trump's defense team also added that Willis had, quote, wrongfully inserted racial animus into the case and should therefore be sanctioned and disqualified. The notion motion comes after a recent speech by Willis. During the speech, she suggested that Wade was targeted because he's black. According to Trump's attorneys, the remark violated Georgia's rules of professional conduct. They say a disbarment could be on the table for such violation. A hearing on Trump's motion is set to take place in Atlanta on February 15th. In more Trump news, former White House adviser Peter Navarro has been sentenced to four months in prison for contempt of Congress. He was indicted last September after defying a subpoena from the now disbanded House January 6th Select Committee. Here's what he told reporters outside the courthouse today. The Department of Justice attorneys, after pressure from not just from my defense team, but also from the judge himself, finally acknowledged, finally acknowledged, that senior presidential advisors, such as myself, cannot be compelled to testify. I am not only just the first person who's ever been charged with this, I will be the last person because of the roadmap we have established. Navarro served as a trade advisor under the Trump administration. He was convicted on two counts, one for failing to submit documents related to the January 6th investigation and another for refusing to testify. The charge carried a minimum one-month prison sentence, and federal prosecutors had asked the judge to make it six months instead. Navarro says he believes Trump granted him executive privilege, which could shield him from testifying in Congress. Navarro isn't the first former Trump official to be held in contempt. Former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon was also sentenced to four months behind bars, but he is now free as he appeals. Navarro's legal team has asked the judge to stay the sentence for further deliberation on what they are calling novel issues. The D.C. judge granted the defense one week to present the new information. 
A deal to make changes at the southern border, something senators have been negotiating for months, could be collapsing. Today, Republican senators giving us mixed responses on whether Minority Leader Mitch McConnell was backing away from the deal and whether possible opposition from former President Trump has anything to do with it. NTD's Melina Weiskup reports from Capitol Hill. Speculations are mounting about whether Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell plans to ditch the idea of tying border policy changes to funding for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. This is after reports circulated that the Republican leader told his conference that these negotiations on the border were getting tough politically. Republicans now telling us that behind closed doors, the Republican leader has changed his tone. After yesterday, it sounded to me like maybe he was less enthusiastic about the border, but he didn't address Ukraine yesterday, so I, I have no idea. When he did say yesterday that uh, it's clear where our apparent nominee is on it, see that uh, was a difference in tone. And what you just heard from Senator Braun points to some comments reportedly made by McConnell where he referred to Trump as the nominee, which is big coming from McConnell considering he's not a fan of Trump, just to say it lightly. We asked other senators if they feel Trump's comments have any influence in these border negotiations after last week the former president spoke out against it writing I do not think we should do a border deal at all unless we get everything needed to shut down the invasion of millions and millions of people. So when Trump weighed in and said he didn't like the deal I'm all for that because I, I don't like it either. Senator Ted Cruz told me bluntly we should listen to Trump and while Trump's influence could be a factor here it's also important to keep in mind that there's a growing number of Senate conservatives who consistently buck Senate leadership and are now speaking out strongly against this border deal. Other Republicans brushed off speculations that Trump has any influence here. I don't think that's what this has ever been about. I think the border negotiations were going south uh, well before the president opined at all on it. Other Republicans and some Democrats say the talks are still ongoing and that they're feeling optimistic. But regardless of how or if a deal comes together on border policy changes and foreign aid, the real obstacle is over in the House. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Reactions pouring in after Texas evoked its constitutional right to defend itself from an invasion. At least 14 governors declared that they stand behind Texas. The state's attorney general now says they might soon take it a step further and start deporting people. NTD's Arian Pastar has more on the border showdown. Texas Governor Greg Abbott on Wednesday officially declared he will not follow requests from the Biden administration to vacate the U.S.-Mexico border. Abbott published this statement saying President Biden has refused to enforce immigration laws and has even violated them. Because of that, Abbott will now invoke Texas constitutional authority to defend and protect itself. So far, at least 14 Republican governors from across the country have announced they stand behind Texas, one of them being the governor of Louisiana. Under our Constitution, states are still sovereign, and we have the right to protect our citizens. Also on Thursday, the Texas Attorney General appeared on The Benny Show, saying that instead of evacuating, Texas will take things a step further. More razor wire, we're going to start deporting people, I think, in March. And once they start deporting people, I'm sure the Biden administration will love that. Meanwhile, illegal immigration is having a real-life impact in places across the U.S. This footage circulating this week shows that immigrants are being housed at Boston's airport. Now, that's because the state of Massachusetts doesn't have any place left to house them. However, it is also the only state in the U.S. with a so-called right-to-shelter law. This means the state has to provide housing to anyone who needs it. And lastly, Republican Senator Bill Haggerty on Thursday talked about the bill he's putting forward. 
We need to make certain that only citizens are counted for the purposes of allocating congressional districts and electoral votes. He says it's not right for blue cities to gain congressional seats just because illegal immigrants who aren't actually allowed to vote live there. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Coming up, how strong are the arguments from each side in this border dispute? Our guest says the Texas governor has been successful in exerting political pressure on the Biden administration. Hear more of his analysis of the border showdown. President Biden touting new economic data as he courts voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin. How our GDP is doing and why Americans are feeling a disconnect between numbers and reality. The mother of a teen who was convicted of a mass shooting at his Michigan high school is on trial, facing manslaughter charges. From tragedy to recovery, owners of a bowling alley in Maine make plans to reopen months after a tragic shooting. Stay tuned for their story after the break. Welcome back. Staying on the dispute between Texas and the Biden administration over the border. How strong are Texas Governor Greg Abbott's arguments and why did the Supreme Court side with the Biden administration? Joining us now to break down the legality of the case, we have Mark Miller. He's a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation. Mark Miller, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Now, the Supreme Court has ruled against Texas, saying that the federal government has a right to remove the razor wire that Texas put up along the border to stop the flow of the illegal immigrants coming into the state. And your understanding, why did SCOTUS rule this way? So the Supreme Court came down this way because traditionally immigration law patrolling the border is seen as the responsibility of the federal government, the executive branch. Um, it, previously, when the Supreme Court has ruled on this issue, maybe about a decade ago, um, the Arizona and the federal government were in a fight about patrolling the Arizona border. Uh, Supreme Court came down in that case five to three in favor of the federal government. And so you could see the justices here, it was five to four, saying that at least for now, on an emergency basis, which is how this came to them, they were going to similarly say the federal government has the right to take down that wire because it's ultimately the federal government's responsibility to patrol the border. Now, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is firing back, saying that Texas has a constitutional right to self-defense. Now, what constitutional rights do states have when it comes to self-defense? Well, he, he is effectively relying upon the argument that, this, that the federal government and the states have a compact, if you will. That's the word. And that if the federal government drops the ball, doesn't do what it's supposed to do under that compact, that compact being basically an agreement, then the states have to take matters into their own, own hands. I would argue that at the end of the day, this is more political than legal. I think Abbott is trying to increase the pressure on the Biden administration. He has been successful in putting political pressure on the administration by taking these immigrants and busing them across the country to, say, Chicago and New York City, and uh, in, in cities that say they are sanctuary cities, and say, OK, you say you're going to help with the immigration issue. Go ahead and help. And we, we can all see on the news that uh, D.C., New York, Chicago are being overwhelmed by these immigrants. And so Texas, I think Governor Abbott sees that he's been successful and he's ratcheting up the pressure. As many have been saying, every state is a border state now. But on the legal aspect, Abbott's letter cites Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3 of the Constitution, which references states being, quote, invaded. Is Abbott's reading a correct one? Well, certainly the word does say, you know, the word in the Constitution says invasion. 
And Abbott's argument would be that immigration, uh, particularly when it's uh, so severe, as we're seeing now in the last year or two, amounts to an invasion. I think those on the other side would argue that, no, in, in, invasion contemplates we're actually at war. Uh, Abbott may say that this amounts to war, but there's arguably a, a big difference uh, between uh, what amounts to war and what is actually war. You know, if these were actual foreign invaders um, trying to kill American residents, citizens, you could see Abbott having an argument. I think for now, I think he's got a tough road to hoe with that argument that invasion is the same as uh, excessive immigration. Hmm. And now the Lone Star State is getting a lot of support from Republican officials in other states from, say, Florida, Montana, Virginia, West Virginia, Georgia, South Dakota, Alabama, Oklahoma, Missouri, among all those expressing solidarity. Where do you see this going? Could SCOTUS actually reverse its decision? That's the interesting thing, Tiffany, is I do think the Supreme Court could rule differently. It was five to four. It was very close. The decision a decade ago, a little over a decade ago, involving Arizona was five to three. There's been three turnover, three justices turned over since then. And so you could imagine that the five to three decision with all nine justices now may go the other way. And the justices may say the ones in play would effectively be Justice Amy Coney Barrett and Chief Justice Roberts, who who ruled to lift the injunction and allow the federal government to remove the razor wire. You could see that after they hear this on the merits, they may decide to rule for Texas under some unique aspect of the facts here. And just that they ruled the way they did here just because it was an emergency and the case law in place, at least as of now, says the federal government should win. That would be the argument. But so I think it's entirely possible, Tiffany, that the justices, when all nine of them hear the case on the merits, could come out differently. Hmm. Mark Miller, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. President Biden taking his Bidenomics pitch to the Midwest as he looks toward the general election. But new polling continues to show Americans are dissatisfied with the economy. NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao has more on the president's message today. President Biden spent Thursday touting his infrastructure investments to voters in the battleground state of Wisconsin, arguing that his Bidenomics platform is boosting jobs and businesses. On my watch, instead of Infrastructure Week, America is having an infrastructure decade. Yeah. Yeah. We're rebuilding factories and jobs are coming back to America. And in a Thursday statement, President Biden also praised new data showing U.S. GDP grew at a 3.3 percent pace in the last quarter of 2023, which was much faster than what was predicted. That growth, meanwhile, is fueled by both an increase in consumer spending and in government spending on both the federal and local level. And despite the positive data, the Federal Reserve has yet to decide on future rate hikes, and some experts are still warning about a mild recession in 2024. Meanwhile, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Thursday saying that inflation is now well under control, adding that recession is unlikely. Though some forecasters thought a recession last year was inevitable, President Biden and I did not. Instead of contracting, the economy has continued to grow. 
But while the Biden administration is trying to seize the moment to try to convince skeptical voters that the economy is improving, a new poll released on Thursday by the Pew Research Center shows that fewer than one in three Americans think the economy is good or excellent. And these ratings are far less positive than they were from 2018 through early 2020, which was during Trump's administration and before COVID hit. And now President Biden and former President Trump are both trying to use the economy as a main talking point in their 2024 pitch to voters. And President Biden is now warning that Republican victories in this upcoming election could give massive giveaways to the wealthy, while President Trump is saying that President Biden is to blame for higher cost of living. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. The mom of the Michigan high school shooter is on trial. Opening arguments began today. Her son, Ethan Crumbly, was 15 years old at the time of the shooting. The evidence will prove that by the time this gun was bought, the school shooter was in a downward spiral that had begun months before. The evidence will also show you that Jennifer Crumbly was aware of that. Despite her knowledge of his deteriorating mental crisis, despite her knowledge of his growing social isolation, Despite the fact that it is illegal for a 15-year-old to walk into a gun store and walk out with a handgun by himself, this gun was gifted. Jennifer Crumbly is pleading not guilty to involuntary manslaughter for her and her husband, James Crumbly. They are accused of playing a role in their son's rampage. Ethan is in prison for the rest of his life without any chance of parole for the November 2021 shooting. Four students were killed and seven others were wounded when he opened fire at his high school in Oxford, Michigan. Prosecutors say Jennifer was aware of her son's mental state the day of the attack. They say she chose to do nothing when the school alerted her hours before the incident occurred. James Crumbly's trial begins in March. They both face up to 15 years each in prison if convicted. In Maine, business owners are defying tragedy and preparing to reopen their bowling alley. This is months after a shooting there killed over two dozen people. Entity's Stephanie Sakal has the story. The October 25th shooting that took the lives of 18 people in a bowling alley and bar in Lewiston, Maine, left the owners convinced that their establishment would remain permanently closed. But now, three months later, they reached a different conclusion. They felt compelled to reopen due to the overwhelming support they received from their families, the Lewiston community, and people across the country. I've been reading a lot of messages from people, including the deaf community, asking me, you know, to reopen. They want me to open. And I finally decided that. I have to reopen. I just can't open at that location. The community kept asking us and we knew um, that everybody kind of needed it. You know, it was a place where, or it is a place where people get to come together and spend time with friends and family or create friends and family. A 69-year-old employee who intends to come back is recognized for saving at least four or five children on that night. And I saw the kids running down towards me. So I ran up to the kids and I got behind them and got them thrown back through the door. And as I turned to go through the door is when he shot me. 
Just-in-time recreation is aiming to reopen in March or April. Meanwhile, Schmeggy's Bar and Grill is still finalizing details regarding when and where their establishment will reopen. Stephanie Sakal, NTD News. Coming up, Russia says it warned Ukraine about that flight that crashed yesterday, killing dozens of Ukrainian prisoners of war. Find out how Ukraine responds. Shots ring out as residents try to get humanitarian aid in the Gaza Strip. This comes as leaked audio from Israel's prime minister may have hurt future hostage negotiations. Jason Perry reports. Communist China is offering to mediate the Middle East conflicts, but our guest says the Biden administration shouldn't trust them. Hear more of his analysis. And a California woman went missing in Guatemala in October, and her family is still looking for answers. Why have witnesses been silent? We take a closer look when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump testified at the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial. Trump maintained his position that Carroll's allegations are false. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro was sentenced to four months in jail for contempt of Congress. His legal team asked the judge to stay the sentence so they can provide additional information. Some GOP senators say minority leader Mitch McConnell changed his tune on the border deal. There were mixed responses as to whether the deal could still go through. At least 14 Republican governors have backed Texas's decision to invoke its constitutional right to self-defense. This, as the Texas Attorney General said his state will soon start deporting illegal immigrants. Now an update on the Russian military plane crash that allegedly killed 65 Ukrainian prisoners of war. The Kremlin has accused Ukraine of shooting it down. And today, Russian officials said they warned Ukraine that the airplane was approaching before it was allegedly shot down. The Ukrainian side was officially warned. I underline this. Officially warned 15 minutes before the plane entered the zone. They were given complete information which they received and confirmed its receipt. Yesterday, Ukraine's military intelligence said it wasn't told how Russia would bring the prisoners to the handover point. And that Russia never asked to ensure airspace security. It also suggested the incident may have been orchestrated by Moscow. Kiev is yet to confirm the allegations that it shot the plane down. Ukrainian officials also say they can't confirm that there were indeed prisoners of war on the plane. And they're calling for an international probe into the crash. From our side, we will do everything to ensure this investigation will happen. We will suggest several options, involve experts, Ukrainian as well as international. But I am convinced that just as in previous incidents, the Russians will make loud statements, but will not allow anyone into their territory, will not hand over any materials for analysis, and will simply blame Ukraine, saying we were at fault. Yesterday, Ukraine's military intelligence said it wasn't told how Russia would bring the prisoners to the handover point, and that Russia never asked to ensure airspace security. It also suggested the incident may have been orchestrated by Moscow. That says Ukrainian officials are accusing Russia of violating the Geneva Convention. 
They say all responsibility for the life and health of prisoners of war is in the hands of the country that holds them captive. Elsewhere in Europe, Turkey's president just officially approved Sweden's bid to join NATO. This ends months of delay and leaves Hungary the only member state standing in the way. The Israel-Hamas war is now well over 100 days. Many continue to call for more humanitarian aid to get into the Gaza Strip. But apparently that's easier said than done. NTD's Jason Perry has the latest on the war and a warning this report contains footage that some viewers may find disturbing. On Thursday, residents of the Gaza Strip swarmed the trucks carrying humanitarian aid on a sunny day at the beach in Rafah in southern Gaza. However, residents in Gaza City apparently saw a different story on Thursday as they were seen running with boxes of humanitarian aid as gunshots were heard in the background. The gunfire and explosions allegedly killed 20 people who were waiting to get humanitarian aid, according to the Hamas-run Ministry of Health, which also blamed Israel of firing on the crowd. The Israeli military ruled out the possibility that their own aircraft or artillery carried out the strike and said they were still investigating. They suggested that the area could have been hit by a Hamas rocket. Meanwhile, on Thursday, family members of the hostages held by Hamas tried to block humanitarian aid from getting into Gaza. There are hundreds of humanitarian trucks come inside to Gaza Strip and only for one side, only for the Palestinians. There is no humanitarian steps for our hostages over there. Earlier in the week, a former hostage spoke to Israel's parliament. I want to tell you that the terrorists bring inappropriate clothes, doll clothes. They have turned those girls into their dolls. It's unbelievable that they are still there. Hamas terrorists still hold her husband hostage in the Gaza Strip. In another development, leaked audio from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu may have strained further negotiations to release the hostages. Qatar has been a key mediator in the talks. I'm willing to use any factor right now that helps me bring them home. I have no illusions about Qatar. They have leverage. Why do they have leverage? Because they are funding Hamas. Qatar's foreign minister released a statement in response. He said that if the comments are true, then Netanyahu is undermining the mediation process instead of prioritizing saving innocent lives, including the lives of Israeli hostages. Meanwhile, the IDF continues to battle its way through the southern Gaza Strip, finding another stash of weapons in Khan Yunus. And on Thursday, the Israeli Commando Brigade said it's now strengthening its operational control of Khan Yunus. The city is one of the final strongholds of the Hamas terrorist group in the Gaza Strip. Jason Perry, NTD News. Reports say National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will be meeting with the Chinese regime's top diplomat to discuss the conflicts in the Middle East. This comes as the Biden administration pushes Beijing to rein in Iran and its proxies. Joining us now to dive into how China is connected to the Middle East, we have Kash Patel. He's the senior advisor to former President Trump for national security, defense and intelligence. Kash Patel, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. 
Now, amid all the tensions we're seeing in the Middle East, China is saying it's working to de-escalate the situation, at least in the Red Sea. Now, White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby is saying the U.S. welcomes China's help. That's despite the tensions we're seeing between the U.S. and China. What do you make of this? Well, this White House, John Kirby, Biden, Sullivan, etc., are responsible for the disaster and the ongoing war in the Red Sea to include the deaths of two U.S. Navy soldiers because of their disastrous national security policy actions. And now we're to believe them that they're getting in bed with the CCP to quell the situation. How about we first get affirmation from our government that the CCP isn't the one selling armaments and munition to Iran? who got $6 billion from the Biden administration, and they are now flush with cash to fulfill the weapons request of their forces, the Houthis, a terrorist organization, Hamas and Hezbollah. Let's get that on the record first before we trust the Chinese to safeguard our waterways, one in which Maersk, the largest global shipping company in the world, has again shut down transit through the Red Sea because it's such a disaster. On the note of Iran, Kirby is saying, quote, China has influence over Tehran, they have influence in Iran, and they have the ability to have conversations with Iranian leaders that we can't. Now, is the U.S. losing its standing on the global stage? It lost it years ago. It lost it after the Trump presidency, in my opinion. I mean, you don't have to take my opinion for it. Look at the facts. We have our allies in the Middle East who don't even receive President Biden's phone calls. We have our allies in the Middle East who stand up our current secretary of state on a tarmac in the Middle East and then apologize for the delay and not show up. We have fallen off the world stage. We also have two world wars that have ignited in the Ukraine and the Middle East. And you also have North Korea and Kim Jong-un starting to fire off rockets again. And no one in America is doing anything to quell it because we have no WASTA under the Biden administration because they did not prioritize national security and Donald Trump did. And I think that's why you're seeing some of the results you are across the country in the polls. National security is such an important issue. And Donald Trump had such a large national security process and prioritization. Expanding on that, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is on his way to meet with China's top foreign policy official Wang Yi to discuss the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea. Now, how should we read China's role in the Middle East? Is it trying to maybe become a diplomatic brokering peace that we saw with the so-called peace deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia earlier last year? How should we read this? No, remember, China is backed by this and run by the CCP, and their only interest is the CCP and the augmentation of their power. We, the United States of America, cannot rely on Iran to be uh, brokered into a peace deal somehow. They're not going to become the Switzerland of the Middle East to quell the Iranian situation. And we have to remind our audience um, how much money and power Iran now possesses, and they're still the world's largest state sponsor of terrorism. So. I don't really have any faith in the fact that this administration is going out of its way to engage the CCP. That just shows you that they themselves, the United States government, cannot quell the situation. That should tell you how far we've fallen. And the CCP continues to seed um, fentanyl through our borders, killing hundreds of thousands of Americans, working with the Iranians and the Russians to seed illegal immigrants and terrorists through our borders. And so maybe they shut all that down and then maybe they can have some credibility on the global stage for, for quote unquote peace negotiations. Now, what does Beijing's rising influence in the region mean for the U.S.? 
It's a big problem. Remember, we had cut off Iran in the Trump administration from the global banking system. We had sanctioned companies and individuals in and around Iranian regime and the Ayatollah and the Quds Force. So they couldn't do any business with anybody until they got in line and stopped killing our allies and stopped committing acts of terrorism. Joe Biden reversed course, removed the sanctions, gave him $6 billion. And who's their number one trading partner around? The Chinese. And we now know that Iran has built itself nuclear weapons grade uranium and they can build they can go acquire these delivery systems from Russia or the Chinese and the CCP and they're doing heavy trading with them. So all of it combined is a disastrous situation that I don't think is going to quell the situation. I think Jake Sullivan and Biden are going to be duped yet again by the superiority of the CCP's domination on the global stage. Now, total war, as referred to by Prussian military strategist Karl von Clausewitz, help us understand how we're seeing that play out. Look, everyone is bombing everyone, literally. The Iranians are bombing the Pakistanis. Um, the Iranians used to bomb the Saudis. The Iranians are now, and their forces are bombing the Israelis and everyone in the Red Sea and American ships and causing people to die and civilians to be killed. Um, you have the CCP, who is the world's bank, put it that way, in terms of Afghanistan trade, Iranian trade, dealing with Russia, DPRK in North Korea. And so I think we have been in a global war since the Ukraine offensive launched by Russia. Make no mistake about it. It's a war. And when hundreds of people are taken hostage in the Middle East and thousands of people are murdered in Israel as a, as a result of a, a terrorist attack, that's an ongoing war that has not yet been stopped. And so it's a tragic situation. We have seen the, the explosion of two new world wars and America continues to fund Iran recklessly and lose weapons and money in, excuse me, in the Ukraine, not Iran, fund Ukraine to the tune of $130 billion. And um, I just don't have any confidence that this administration is going to do anything other than try to save face by printing lies in the media. Kash Patel, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. Have a great day. The family of a woman who went missing in Guatemala more than three months ago said they're still trying to piece together what happened. Odd behavior from witnesses, conflicting information and silence keep them feeling left in the dark. NTD's Jason Blair speaks to the sister of the woman. After searching for answers in Guatemala, the family of a missing American woman feels like they still have more questions than answers. It's just very frustrating because even three months later, my family is searching for answers that we should have had on day one. 29-year-old Nancy Ng went missing in Guatemala in October while attending a yoga retreat. She was last seen in Lake Adelan on a rented kayak. She was with another woman when she disappeared. The kayak rental company said the yoga retreat group did not tell them about Miss Ng's disappearance and did not pay. And despite being scheduled to stay longer, they left the country within 12 hours. A company owner told ABC, quote, I just don't understand that part of leaving within eight hours, 12 hours of the accident. The woman with missing when she disappeared, Christina Blazik, claims to have filed a statement with police. However, the prosecutor investigating the case in Guatemala has yet to find the statement. An initial three-day search by Guatemalan authorities came up empty-handed. They believe missing drowned. The FBI did an investigation but is not able to reveal any details to the family or the public. However, they did state they are not aware of any foul play. 
Blazik, the only direct witness, spoke with the FBI but did not respond to requests from search teams to help with search efforts. She also has not spoken with Missing's family after numerous requests. The family has been paying out of pocket for helicopter and underwater search efforts, but so far have not made much progress. They've said also that in their 20 plus years of experience, they've never had a witness to an accident not help, not offer information, and that this was just a very bizarre case. After a month of silence, Blazik spoke publicly through her attorney for the first time, saying that Nancy drowned after getting out of her kayak to swim. Her attorney told KTLA, quote, My client has, from the very beginning, done everything she can do to shed light on what happened and cooperate with giving whatever information that she has. The investigation by Guatemalan authorities is still ongoing. The prosecutor in charge of the case received a report saying that police were bribed in exchange for omitting Blazik's police statement and to keep Blazik out of custody. The allegations are currently being investigated by Guatemalan authorities. Jason Blair, Entity News. Coming up, Pokemon in court. The Pokemon company is exploring legal action against Pal World. Find out why. And in the NFL, Jim Harbaugh is headed to L.A. as the new coach for the Chargers. But where does that leave Michigan? NDD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we come back. Welcome back. The Pokemon Company is exploring legal action against Pal World, a highly successful, record-breaking new game, which features catchable creatures called Pals, many of which look suspiciously similar to Pokemon. NTD's Virginia Gibson has more. No, this is not a trailer for a new Pokemon game. This is Pal World, a record-breaking new game that's passed 2 million concurrent players on Steam. Players comment, amazing, very addicting and fun, and don't get sued, please. Some people call it Pokemon with guns. Pal World is a seemingly heavily inspired uh, take on Pokemon featuring creatures that look very similar to creatures that we've grown up and have known for, what, for 30 years now? Andre Seegers is the founder of YouTube channel Game Explain. He says Pal World's massive success has drawn the Pokemon Company's attention. Pokemon Company released a statement Thursday saying, We have not granted any permission for the use of Pokemon intellectual property or assets in that game. We intend to investigate and take appropriate measures. There are many similarities. Pal World's Anubis looks a lot like the Pokemon Lucario. The spheres in Pal World look very similar to the Pokeballs in Pokemon. And besides the guns, the gameplay themes of catching and fighting these creatures is similar to the themes in Pokemon games. The core gameplay isn't really all that Pokemon-like. It's, it's very much almost a different style of game that just happens to feature an element of Pokemon on top of it all. Pal World's actually more of a Base building survival game. So it's more about surviving in this world that's out to get you, and it's less about, you know, fighting others with your Pokemon. Seegers says he doesn't know if Pokemon will sue or if they have a chance of winning. Gameplay mechanics are not copyrightable, and there are no complete blatant copies of specific copyrighted Pokemon. In a similar case in 2012, 
Tetris Holding LLC sued Sio Interactive over copyright infringement and won. Sio's game, called Mino, was very popular and was downloaded millions of times. The court found that even though gameplay mechanics are not copyrightable, the fact that two games looked practically identical suggested Sio infringed on Tetris's rights. Game artists have suggested that Pal World may have copied Pokemon's models. Virginia Gibson, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, Michigan's Jim Harbaugh has apparently left for the NFL's LA Chargers. Do you see him making an immediate impact there? Yeah, I really do. I mean, he's had that impact before in the NFL. You know, when he went to the 49ers a dozen years ago, he immediately turned them around, leading them to the playoffs three times in four years after they had no appearances the previous 10 years. And they really weren't that talented, I don't think. The Chargers, I would say, are more talented. I think several coaches were after this job. I mean, they have a very good young quarterback in Justin Herbert to work with. He's only 25, plus some playmakers on offense. Now, I'll grant they are aging. Ditto on defense. There's some talent there. It's not really that young anyway, but I think a lot of people like myself were very surprised that they only went 5-12 and 12 this year. Usually a good quarterback will at least you get you on the verge of the postseason. So I think they did very well to get Harbaugh. I think the Chargers are going to be a playoff team next year with him in charge. Well, now with Harbaugh gone from Michigan, what do you see happening with that program? Well, we'll have to see who they hire, but this is one of the winningest programs in NCAA history. There's a lot of tradition there. No matter who's the coach, players want to go there. They play in front of 100,000 fans every week. They graduate players to the NFL, so it's a high standard. No matter who coaches there, they have to pretty much keep the program as a national contender or they'll likely be out. Now, there are reports they're considering hiring assistant coach Sharon Moore to replace him. Moore was a replacement head coach for the game days that Harbaugh was suspended for this past season. Now, he's only 37, but he's seen as a fast, um, a fast riser in the coaching ranks. Now, usually the advantage of hiring someone from your own staff is it keeps your players and, you know, potential recruits from leaving. Now, Michigan hasn't announced anything yet, but if they do go with Moore, it'll be interesting to see how many players he can keep from uh, transferring or going somewhere else. Well, now switching gears to the Australian Open, U.S. teenager Coco Gauff lost this morning in the semifinals. Now, when do the men's semifinals start? Yeah, Novak Djokovic will face fourth-seeded Yannick Sinner tonight, starting at 10.30 Eastern time, I believe. Then afterwards, you'll have third-seeded Daniel Medvedev against the sixth-seed Alexander Zverev. Now, Zverev is the one that upset Carlos Alcaraz in the quarters. Now, Djokovic is 8-1 against these other three here in Grand Slam matches, which are the best of five matches, five sets, that is. The only one who's gotten him was Medvedev at the U.S. Open Finals a couple years ago. Now, on the women's side, Goff lost, as you mentioned, to Irina Sabalenka, who's now going for her second straight Australian Open title. She'll face China's King Wen Jin in the finals. That'll take place at about 3.30 a.m. Eastern Time, Saturday morning. On out looking at the NHL tonight, the Edmonton Oilers put their 14-game winning streak on the line as they host last place Chicago. Where does this streak rank in league history? Yeah, this is just the seventh team ever to get to a 14-game win streak or more in NHL history. They're only three off the record. That was by Pittsburgh all the way back in 1993. This is back when they had Mario Lemieux and a 20-year-old named Yarmir Yager. Now, I mention that because Yager is actually still playing professionally in Europe, which is pretty amazing. 
amazing. Anyway, for Edmonton, they've had a great offense with reigning MVP Connor McDavid leading the way. This year, though, they've been a better defensive team. They've allowed two goals or less for now 12 straight games. That's a franchise record. Now, interestingly, despite this run, they still only have the sixth most points in their conference. So it's still a ways for them to get to the top. Well, Dave, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tiff. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.